0: When I was young, long time ago, there was a song we learned in church. I remember vacation Bible school, maybe Sunday school, and it talked, it said, The church is not a building, church is not a steeple. Some of you may know it, the church is not a resting place. The church is the people. And it goes on, I am the church, you are the church, we are the church together. And so this picture of what the church is. And I remember that song. But I was thinking, and I want to talk today and share about what does it mean to be the church? And more importantly, why the church? What is the role of the church? And look at one of the purposes that the church exists and one of the things that it does. And so we're going to be looking at that from the book of Ephesians. We've been doing a series on what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, someone who seeks, as Kara said, to live our lives as Jesus would live it if he were us. And we've been talking about it in the context of politics. And politics is this big word, but politics is the way we do life together. And so in some sense, the church or the body of Christ is a politic because we have a way we live life together, a way we deal with resources, a way that we treat one another. So all these things. And so we talked about the necessity of power and how the world focuses on power over and the way of Jesus is the way of power under. Talked about the importance of unity and loving one another In the midst of our differences and how our baptism is a sign of our identity and how that is our primary identity and not to let other things go over. And so today we're going to be looking at this picture of the church as a manifestation or as a witness. And so Paul's letter to the Ephesians, this is this this letter written to this church and he's talking to them. And I just want to Touch on a few key things from these passages here. And so he starts off in the passage we read from Ephesians chapter 1, where he's talking about his faith and how he's heard about the faith of the people and he's giving thanks to them. But then he goes on and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This is chapter 1, verse 18 may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance. So he's praying for the people to know and to understand what God has done for them. And then he gives to them the same power that he, he used when he raised Jesus from the dead. And then he used that same power and he seated Jesus at the right hand. And so this is a picture of Jesus as King of kings and as Lord of lords. But then he comes at the end, he says, He says, and God placed all things under his feet. God took everything, all the rulers of the world, as well as the principalities and powers and these evil forces, whatever, these spiritual forces, and placed them under the feet of Jesus and made him to be head over everything for the church. In other words, he did this for our benefit. That somehow what God did when he raised Jesus from the dead, when he placed him over the, to rule over all things, was for our sake. And I begin to think about that. That makes me begin to think how special we are, how precious we are. That God did this for our sake. And then he describes this as the body and the filling the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, that we are connected to this one. We are connected to Jesus who is the fullness of all things. So we start there with this picture of the church that Paul gives us as the body of Christ, but not only that, as being the beneficiary of all that Jesus does. But then we move to chapter three and we see something, an even bigger picture, this incredible picture, which I remember, I know, it was quite a few years ago when I read this passage again and saw something in there I hadn't seen. So he's talking about himself being a, becoming a servant of the gospel. Um, and he goes in, in chapter, nine, chapter three, verse nine, says, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages has been kept hidden past. Who, um, and so he's talking about this mystery. And the mystery, you know, sometimes we think of mysteries like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha the Christie, something. but a mystery in biblical terms is something that God is now revealing to his people, something that has been hidden. And what is he revealing? Well, in the previous chapter, in chapter two, Paul has described what the work of Jesus is, that he's come into the world and he talks about, he's brought about forgiveness of sin, that we were dead in our transgressions and sin, that we've been made alive in Christ and we've been created to do good works. And then the middle of chapter two, he talks about how he's brought two people together. He brought the Jews and the Gentiles together. And so he's assuming you know this long history of the Jewish people, the people called by God to be a special people, and the Gentiles, who was basically everyone else. And there was this separation between them, that the Jews felt themselves set apart, that God had given them a purpose and a plan. But part of the problem was the Jews over time, like many people do, when you're told you're special, when you're told you're someone, when you have a purpose, you begin to look down on the people who aren't a part of the plan. And so these markers that were created to help them live into their life became a way to separate themselves. And so they started separating themselves from everybody. And in chapter 2 it says, Jesus in his death brought these two together and made them into one humanity. That these barriers, these walls between being a Jew and a Gentile no longer existed. And so Paul's talking about that in chapter 3. He says, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. He says this now, his intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He's saying there was a mystery. This thing that God hadn't revealed in the what he hadn't revealed yet was that God's plan always was for the Jews and the Gentiles to become one people on equal footing. You see, the Jews thought of themselves as they were special and they knew they had a mission to the Gentiles. They knew they were going to do something that the promise of Abraham for all the world to be blessed, that they would be a blessing, but they always thought of themselves as being a step above. They thought of themselves as being a little bit better and Paul's saying, no, God's plan all along was that you would be on equal footing, that there wouldn't be these divisions of power. But did you catch that? He said his intent was now that through the church, in other words, through the gatherings of disciples of Jesus, this wisdom, this plan of God would be made known, and not made known simply to the people down the street. But what does it say? Would be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. And we could spend a whole series talking about what that is. In fact, we did a couple years ago and you can go back and listen to those on, on spiritual warfare and hear about that. But to say there is something beyond what we see here. They're what Paul calls the spiritual, the rulers and the authorities or the principalities and the powers. They exist and they have an influence on what goes on here. And one way to think about it is there are these principalities and powers, and however we describe them, some people use demons, other language to describe these things. And when we give them the power that is to be ours, because Jesus is the ruler over all things, when we take it away from Jesus and give it to those rhythms, they take it and they twist it and they turn it and use it. And one of the things that the principalities and the powers use is misplaced power, is this idea of what David Fitch calls the enemy-making machine, where we take people who are different from us. And then sometimes there's differences are natural differences, there are things that occur, and we take them, and now we make it the church of us versus them. It's an us versus them kind of thing. And that's what the Jews had done, was they had looked, and they saw it as an us versus them. And when we do that, we give power to the authorities, and they begin to take that, and they begin to turn it, and it just becomes worse. And so what it's saying is this is what's happening here. But he's saying the church is to be this place where we proclaim to the principalities and powers the truth that these two are on equal footing. The church is to be a demonstration, a manifestation of what's going on in the kingdom. And now we think, okay, That's great for Paul 2,000 years ago, but what about for us? We don't deal with that issue too much here in the United States in terms of separation of Jews and Gentiles, but I want us to think about how maybe there is something that's going on here, that there are still things that divide us. There are still things that separate us, and we've been talking about politics, but we're going to talk about something else, about how the power grabs onto these things, how we allow things that exist to divide us, and how the powers, the principalities grab onto those things and describe them. And when the church no longer allows that, when we take away those divisions and separations, we are a challenge to the powers. And so what I want us to think about in the context of today for this passage about the church being a manifestation, the church proclaiming to the powers that these divisions no longer exist, is to deal with the issue a little bit of race and racism. And I want to, as we go through, I want to try and choose my words carefully because I know this is a topic that can be fraught. We hear words and we have assumptions. And some of you, even as soon as I said the words race and racism, you might have been rolling your eyes or you might have been leaning forward to hear. And you have a concept of already of what those words mean. And that's a challenge, isn't it, that we have concepts of words and what they mean, and sometimes we hear a word and we instantly, we put all the baggage behind it. So I would invite you just to to try and follow along with me. And if I say things that don't make sense, if you don't understand them, if you disagree with them, let's have a conversation about it call me, text me, send me, well, don't send an email. Let's have a conversation because emails, texts, if you send me an email or text, that say, hey, I didn't understand something. Let's talk about it. Because I found that written communication, well, I mean, I I like written communication. Sometimes it gives me time to think, but oftentimes we need to be able to have those conversations face-to-face or over Zoom or whatever way we would choose to have it in today's world. So some way to have a conversation. So if you say something, you don't understand it or you want to push back on it or you want to say, I want to explore that a little more. Let's have that conversation. So this idea of race and to think about the way this creates divisions in our society. And so one of the things, and, and we it's just a reality, we look around and we look around most of the churches in the United States. 90% of African-Americans attend a church that's predominantly African-American or almost exclusively, and 90 to 95% of white people attend Churches that are predominantly white people. Interracial marriages between whites and blacks is like 1% to 2%. It's one of the lowest. And so there are these ongoing divisions. And so we want to think about what this is. And the first thing I want to talk about or say is we tend to think of racism as this individual sin. As something, you know, a racist is some person who does bad acts. And so I want us to kind of move beyond that a little bit to explore the idea of the powers but how this division has continued to manifest itself. And what I want us to think about is how the division continues to exist. It exists primarily because of a lie that has been told. The lie of race and the superiority of one race over another. And so, i do, as you might know, I like history lessons. So history, a little bit of a history lesson here. To think about what's going on. And so, uh-oh. so in, in in the bible we hear god talking about the different peoples or the ethnic groups and we talk about ethnicities if we were to go around the room here we all have different ethnic backgrounds mine's primarily swedish with some german and some unknown country came in because my one grandmother was adopted and so we don't know all of her stories so and along with ethnicities come traditions and ideas and about ways to do things about the kind of foods you eat and how Holidays are celebrated in different backgrounds. And so these are created by God and they're a good thing. But the idea of race is a social construct. The idea of what we call race is a social construct, something that was developed. And so we go back to the 1500s and the 1600s as the international slave trade begun. So the slave trade encompassed all sorts of things, but it was Europeans bringing, enslaving people from Africa and using them for labor. And there was slavery of other people. There were Irish people. There were a variety of people brought into slavery. And many of them came and were brought to the Americas. Lots to South and Central America, to Haiti and America, and then also to North America. And as this slave trade went on and as people were enslaved and brought over, initially, many of the people brought were seen as simply indentured servants. That there was a possibility that when they were brought over, that they might work their way out of it. But then something crept in. And what was that something? It was something called greed. You see, because in the Americas, there were these two products, tobacco and sugar, which provided a basis for an incredible economy. And so the Europeans who had settled here in the Americas needed laborers because Harvesting tobacco and sugar is long and hard work. And the number of Europeans coming to the Americas was slowly diminishing. And so the easiest way to find the labor was by continuing to enslave people and bring them literally by the millions from across the sea to Americas. And and so they brought them and they continued this process. And initially, again, there was this idea that there was indentured services that might work their way out of it. But then something began to creep in, and they began to wonder, and what happened was they began to see a difference, and the people there made a differentiation between the Christians and the non-Christians. And so all of a sudden, it was like, well, we we can enslave non-Christians, but not Christians. And well, that meant, well, we're not enslaving the people from Europe because they're Christians, But the people from Africa, they're non-Christian, so it's okay to bring them into slavery. Well, then what happened was the slaves began to hear about the religion of their masters, and they began to be Christians. And now the Europeans had a bit of a fix because they wondered, well, what are we going to do now? Can we enslave our brothers and sisters? Well, in 1667, Virginia passed a law that said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, baptism doesn't free somebody from slavery. And then what began to do is, because they could no longer do it based on religion, they began to develop other ideas and other reasons to enslave people. And so it began to begin this thing to say, well, you know, it's okay to enslave them because they're an inferior race. And so this idea, this construct of race began to be developed where people with a darker skin with a different kind of hair were somehow seen as inferior. They began to be seen as savages, as something as less than. And so the idea of a race began to be developed and they used this as a way to justify and begin to say, it's perfectly okay because we're actually doing them a service. We're benefiting them. We're, we're helping them. We're giving them the possibility of learning about Jesus. Think about the how crazy that is. The, the idea that to put somebody in slavery and to say, well, but, but it's okay because you know, maybe this will help them learn about who Jesus is. We're saving these heathens. But all in the midst of that was this concept that began, again, that's why I said it's a social construct. There's no biological Difference to say that somehow because of the level of melatonin in our skin that one person is superior to another. But it was a developed construct to say that some people were superior to others. That the African race, which was not a term that existed before the 1500s and 1600s, was somehow inferior and so it justified bringing them into slavery. To say they were somehow less than human and it was even put into the founding documents of our country, where they were counted as three-fifths of a person. And so this construct began to creep in. And so in this, then, we saw there was one race, there was this white race, and there was a black race, and one was superior to the others. And this continued on. It wasn't simply something that ended. We think sometimes like, oh, well, but then we had a civil war and slavery ended. And it was all over. But it wasn't over. Because when the Civil War ended, the 13th Amendment was passed, which freed people from slavery. But it continued, particularly in the South, but all throughout the United States, this level of looking at blacks as less than. And so, because slavery as a foundation was no longer legal here in the United States, they went into a process of saying, well, but someone in prison can be used for basically slave labor. And so what happened in the South was frequently people were arrested for just about anything and everything, put in prison, and then the wardens would then sell them off. So person placed in jail, and then the jailer would then sell this person or rent them out to other people to use for labor. So a black man might be walking down the street at the wrong time of day, be arrested, put in jail, the jailer takes him essentially rents him out to whoever wants to use him for labor to now work the cotton fields and the tobacco plantations. And so it continues on. It's the area where lynchings happen, the area of Jim Crow laws, and it moves into the area era, you know, the 1900s. We think, oh, well, this war ended. We were still, had segregation legalized, under Supreme Court decisions until 1954. We have Brown versus Board of Education. And then it continues on, and we have the Civil Rights Movement. So this idea of, again, this idea of one race being superior to another continues as a narrative that shapes our nation. And it continues to affect, and we think, well, but that was then, this is now. And sometimes we might, for me... As a white guy, sometimes I'm tempted to say, well, but my grandparents didn't come over till the 1920s. I didn't have anything to do with slavery. But one way to think about it is to think about how have these systems and how are these powers affected? We do it. And so I read something a, a number of years ago, helped me think about a good way to say, the question to ask isn't, am I a racist? Because that's what we think of racist being, you know, you say certain words, you, you look at people a certain way. race says, but how does living in a racialized society affect me? How does living in a country in which people have been looked at as less than affect me? And so we've been talking about COVID. And so just a couple of statistics from a recent article. And it said this, that because of the pandemic, currently 45% of black adults are unemployed or 45% are employed, sorry. Two out of five black small businesses and self-employed workers have been forced to shutter during the pandemic, well over twice the rate of white businesses. And more than one in five black families now report they often or sometimes do not have enough food, more than three times the rate for white families. Black families are almost four times as likely as whites to report they missed a mortgage payment during the crisis. And so the question we begin to ask ourselves is, Why is that the case? What has gone on in our country? Why do these things happen? And we might say, well, it's because they are... And all of a sudden we're saying, well, wait a minute. Are we judging them? What is the reason for that? Or is there something that's happened in the systems? Is there something that's gone on in the history of this country to lead to this point where some people are disproportionately affected over others? Why is the rate of maternal deaths... 20 to 30 times higher in the african-american population than in the white population why do all these things go on and we begin to ask ourselves the question how has all that history even if i never used an n-word even if i never said any of those things how has all those things affected the society we're in and then how does that play in the church you say well but the church didn't have anything to do with it let's think about that for just a minute we declare ourselves to be a Christian nation. For most of the 1700s and 1800s, a vast majority of the people in the United States went to church, sat in churches every single Sunday. If that's the case, then why did it take till 1865 to slavery to end? When most of the world had ended the international slave trade in 1808? If the vast majority of the nation were churches, why did they continue to let? A convict system continue in the South. Why did they tolerate a Jim Crow laws? Why did they tolerate lynchings? In 1807, there was a Bible produced called the Slave Bible. Produced by churches to give to the slaves so they could learn the good Christian religion. Interesting thing is, in those Slave Bibles, they'd certainly cut out a few passages. They'd gone through and said, oh, this part about all, you know, Galatians 3.28, you know, no longer slave, nor free. What? No, we don't need that passage because we don't want them reading that. Parts of the book of Ephesians that talk about this equality. Well, we'll keep this passage where it says here, slaves submit to your master, but this other part about these things, no, we're going to take those parts out. And so the church participated in it. And it wasn't just, we think, well, that was 100 years ago. Bob Jones University, a leading evangelical university did not allow blacks to be admitted because of the color of their skin until 1971. 1971. I think most of us sitting in the room here were alive in 1971. This isn't ancient history. 1971, someone could not attend a Christian university, a major Christian university, because of the color of their skin. It was the year 2000 before people were allowed to date someone of a different race at Bob Jones University. Interracial dating was prohibited, and it was all based on biblical justification where they went to the Bible, and so the church has been involved in it. And so the question we ask ourselves is, what do we do about it? And this is my response sometimes when I hear things like this, I hear about these things, I'm like, i was like, I need to go do something. Any of you ever feel like that? Like, you hear about something, you hear about some injustice, you hear about something, it's like, oh, I need to go fix it. I want us to step back for a minute and say, and the temptation to do it then is, well, we just need to be more diverse. You know, as a pastor, we'll you know, I'll go to conferences and we'll hear about this and we'll hear about the lack of diversity in our churches and the thought is, well, what we need to do is we just need to get some more black people coming to our church. I need to hire an African-American associate pastor who will attract other people to come in. Because if we just had diversity, if we just had people that look different from us, then then we would be living out this kingdom call. We would be proclaiming to the powers of what it's like. The problem is that a lot of churches that try this, it doesn't work. They try and become diverse, but it doesn't work because something else is still going on. Because what happens is they expect the minority group, the African-Americans who come in, to fit into their style of doing things. We have a style of doing church, don't we? A way we sing, a way we pray, a way I preach, a way you all sit and say nothing when I preach. That's not typical in many African-American churches. And so if an African-American then comes to this church and then are expected to kind of fit into ours, and we say, well, this is how things are done. And so it's an interesting phenomena, if we think about it, to say, on my shelf, I have all these books that are labeled theology books. And then a few that say black theology it's interesting, isn't it? So there's, there's theology, and then there's this subset of it, which happens to be what some black people think about it. Why is their theology somehow relegated to something different? And so we begin to normalize what it looks like, and that's what I'm talking about when I say this racialized society. We normalize what things look like. Go to the store and walk down an aisle and see the way things are. We have the you know, the hair care section and then there's the ethnic hair care section. Or go down the toy aisle and notice what most of the dolls look like. Normalized beauty. Think back on beauty pageants here in the United States. The vast majority of What do most of the beauty pageant contestants look like? An idealized version of what beauty looks like. And it's mostly white, isn't it? And so there's this way it's done and so... Here in the church, we do the same thing. We kind of normalize and say, well, this is how church works. This is the role of the pastor. This is the role of people. This is how we sing. These are the kind of things we say. These are the things are okay to say. These are the things that are not okay to say. And so when we try and become a diverse church, it doesn't work because we kind of, we have a tendency to say, well, this is the way it's done. In other words, our way is better. And so the idea of white superiority or white supremacy continues in the church. So I would invite us to say, what's the alternative starting place? It's Not to say that diversity isn't eventually a goal, but I think the starting place is to examine ourselves, our church and our institution with God's help and ask ourselves, where does this lie continue to persist? Where does the lie continue to persist that one race is inferior to another? And I can't answer that for question for you. That's something you need to answer for yourself. And maybe answer for our church and say, where do we continue to have this? Where does this lie continue to persist that whites are superior to blacks? And you say, well, I don't think that. It's like, again, it's not about a personal opinion. It's not about you being a racist. It's about what, in what way do our systems, in what way do our schools, our housing, the way our government functions, in what way do all those things, and in what way do our churches continue to operate and allow the lie to persist that was developed hundreds of years ago to enslave a group of people for greed. Where does that lie continue to persist? Because as long as we continue to allow that lie to persist, the powers and the principalities continue to use that and drive a wedge between people. That lie has existed, and so we've allowed it because we gave that into that lie the principalities and the powers Satan, who is labeled as the father of lies, has used that lie to separate and to divide us. We sit in our own churches on Sunday morning, the most segregated hour of the week, because we have allowed a lie to persist that was developed hundreds of years ago for the sake of greed of a group of people so they can continue to maintain power. And see, it all comes back to that. I mentioned at the beginning that the way of Jesus is not the way of power, but see, We're always seeking to grab power. And when we take the power, when we try and grab power for ourselves, it corrupts and it turns. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is the story behind this, and how can we demonstrate a better way? And so that's what Paul is calling the church here to say, is to say, how can we begin to disarm that lie? How can we begin to disarm the lie of white supremacy? It begins in part with learning of education of beginning to understand. I gave you a jumbled four or five minute history of a racialization here in the United States. If you want to learn more, I can point you to articles. And if you want to go a little bit deeper, I can give you books and point you to books. There are, if you have Amazon Prime, there are movies and shows that you can watch and learn and understand some of this history so that when things happen... We can begin to do it. So it can begin with education. It can begin, secondly, with us beginning to associate and asking questions. And so to not be quick when someone says, well, this is what I experienced. Well, but you must have. To stop and understand other people's experiences and to have them simply tell you about their experiences. And I believe that we as the church have that possibility. The church has too long been complicit in this racism complicit in the racialization of what has happened in the United States. And so, but here, what Paul is saying is God's intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, in other words, the taking down of the lies, the taking down of the divisions that people create, his intent was that through the church this would happen. And as we live out and as we take away the lie, as we begin to live into the truth that God has made every single person in his image that people are not less than or greater than because of the color of his skin but each and every person is created in the image of God when we begin to live into that truth we proclaim to the principalities and powers we begin to say no that is not true we have a chance to tell the principalities and powers that they are wrong We have a chance to tell the principalities and powers that they have no power. We have a chance to proclaim to the principalities and powers. No, the truth is that God loves every single person. And that there is not these divisions that we have falsely created. And I believe that with God's help, we can do that. We can manifest to the powers, the lies, and live in the light, and live in that truth. Let's educate ourselves. Let's learn. But let's ask God, because ultimately only with god's help we can do this because as we begin to explore as we begin to look deep inside of ourselves and to see the way we've benefited to see maybe the way we have acted the way we treat things to maybe even look inside and realize yeah when i drive down that street i act a little bit differently because i see somebody who's got a different color skin and as we begin to do that our tendency is to want to pull back because we don't like looking at the ugliness inside ourselves sometimes But with God's help, we can explore that and we can begin to be the people that God has called us to be. We can begin to be people of truth who proclaim to the principalities and powers that these divisions no longer exist, that we will not live the lie that says that, but instead we will live the truth. Can we, church, be people of truth? Can we say that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, black nor white, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Can we proclaim and say that we are going to deal with this lie that there is one race that is superior? Can we begin to deal with the lie of white supremacy and begin to say that Jesus is Lord and proclaim to the principalities and powers that the divisions are no more? I think we can, with God's help. Amen.